So my name is Preston Bruno. I am an associate at Choate Hall and Stewart. In the data privacy and data security spaces, I primarily work in two areas, in compliance and on litigation. In the compliance side, I primarily deal with three different sorts of tasks. The first being, the first being um, editing and revising privacy policies in light of state laws. Uh, the major state law in this area that we've dealt with has been the California Consumer Privacy Act, but other states continue to pass similar omnibus state privacy laws that affect this area, and it's kind of constantly changing. So I find that to be kind of a, an exciting field to deal with is privacy policy revisions. Um, the other compliance area I work in is dealing with data breach notifications. So following a data breach, all states in the District of Columbia have laws that require you to under certain circumstances notify the individuals affected, government organizations such as the Attorney General's office, uh, and potentially third parties such as credit reporting agencies. The third compliance area I work in is assisting organizations with developing and implementing written information security programs or WISPs. Um, under Massachusetts law is actually all organizations that maintain personal information must have a WISP in place, which requires them to have certain types of controls to protect personal information. On the litigation side, I primarily deal with data breach class action defense. So this is assisting organizations in defending primarily federal litigation um, brought by plaintiffs who have had their personal information potentially disclosed following a data breach. Um, while this can be similar to other large class action litigation, I find that the issues that arise here can be quite interesting. Um, to give one example, standing has been a huge uh, kind of doctrinal development in this field that is still being worked out whether point of have standing following a data breach to bring suit and sort of working through that and understanding the underlying concepts I found to be extremely interesting. Um, so that's generally my practice, and I will now hand it over to Jared. Hi, everybody. Um, I am Jared Reinheimer. I work at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. Um, I've been there, oh, about six years, uh, in currently in the Data Privacy and Security Division, which is about a year old, previously the Consumer Protection Division, but doing essentially the same work. So um, in this area, I think you can think of the AG's office as sort of having an enforcement capacity and an advocacy capacity. So the civil enforcement work we do through issuing civil investigative demands, which are basically like pre-litigation subpoenas um, for either documents or testimony. Um, and the advocacy work is through like um, encouraging passage of laws or um, doing amicus briefs. Um, a few years ago, there was a case involving Spokio um, where we submitted an amicus brief um, or just calling out particular practices that we don't like. Um, recently, the AG um, you know, told, told Facebook that they didn't really like the idea of Instagram for kids and um, that uh, when those things generate press, it can sometimes um, force people to make a little bit of a change. Um, so the enforcement work kind of is in both data security and privacy. The security area is um, where the people that Preston sends those breach notifications to. 
So um, among the many other states, Massachusetts has one, it's called chapter 93H. Um, and it requires that the attorney general's office and consumers are notified when personal information has been implicated in like a data security incident has to be done as soon as practicable and without unreasonable delay. And that is the language in the statute. There's no specific timeline. Um, but um, if you're looking sort of for an example of a case involving that standard, um, there's a recent case involving Uber when they um, kind of hid the fact that they had had an incident for a while um, and finally decided to notify much later. Um, <clears throat> the other thing we enforce in this area, the Massachusetts data security regulations, which are 201 CMR 17, and those are um, the WISPs that Preston was talking about, it's written information security program, and those um, Anybody who has personal information about a Massachusetts resident, which is name, social security number, name, financial account number, or name and driver's license number, needs to abide by the data security regulations, which have, they have to develop and maintain an information security program. Um, and there are also specific requirements as part of that, which are, um, they have to assess the risks, there's training requirements, um, enforcing detection measures. A big one is overseeing your service providers, making sure that they're also following the regulations. Um, uh, encryption of portable devices is one that, that comes up sometimes um, and you know, keeping systems up to date. So if you're looking for an example of that, um, the Equifax case, uh, from a few years ago um, is, is one where a lot of our allegations were concerning the data security regulations. Um, and then the final part of that is chapter 93A, which is the unfair and deceptive acts and practices law. So sometimes what we'll do is enforce representations made about data privacy or data security that are made by companies. Um, <clears throat> those representations turn out to be not true, um, then that might constitute an unfair deceptive act of practice. Um, so that's the data security work. And then the data privacy work is um, primarily done through chapter 93A. And um, we're seeking to sort of grow that work in the coming years um, and months. That's, uh, we're looking at things like using consumer data in unfair ways. Um, algorithmic discrimination. Um, one example of this is um, a case, <coughs> excuse me, a case a few years ago involving a gentleman who lived in Brookline who was geofencing abortion clinics um, and deciding to push ads to anybody who entered saying, um, it's not too late. Um, so we consider that to be an invasion of privacy, like a really kind of over the line sort of practice. Um, and we essentially got that, that person to not, not do that in Massachusetts. Um, <clears throat> and that's called Copley advertising, if you're curious about it. Um, so the other stuff we're working on in this area is like uh, sharing of consumer data um, without consumer knowledge, for instance, the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica events, we're doing an investigation surrounding that right now, um, or child privacy, like the Instagram for kids thing. 
um, or just you know re-identification of consumer information that is supposedly anonymous. All these sorts of things are areas we're interested in, um, and you may see more from us in the future. Um, so that's kind of a general overview of me and what I do, and um, I'll hand it off to Mackenzie. Hi everyone, my name is Mackenzie Queenan. I am an assistant US attorney here in Massachusetts. I have been part of the office for almost three years. And before that, I was an associate at uh, law firms in Boston for about six years. Um, sort of what the US attorney's office does and how it differs from the AG's office and what Jared does is um, the US attorney's office is focusing on prosecuting cyber crimes. And so we have a unit and actually various units that sort of are aligned in meeting that goal. So I am a part of the securities, cyber and fin financial fraud unit. Um, there are also prosecutions of cyber crimes in our office by other units, the national security unit and the major crimes unit. Um, there's some overlap between um, what the units look at, but primarily we focus on partnering across the office to prosecute various types of cyber crimes. And so we're different from the AG's office in that our role is not regulatory. So we're not um, at a basic level investigating companies or individuals for violating their obligations under the law to notify customers. That's the AG's office realm. And what we primarily do is go after cyber criminals and people that are violating federal law in various ways. So some examples of what that might look like, um, we focus on computer hacking. So um, any sort of data breach or ransomware that, that touches Massachusetts in some way, um, theft of IP related information or um, counterfeit goods. Uh, we look at destructive attacks, so um, DDoSs or also known as distributed denial of service attacks, an attempt to sort of disrupt traffic on a server, um, cyber stalking, so conduct that sort of meets a federal standard for um, causing someone to be in fear based on conduct occurring over the internet. Um, and then we also have sort of national security related um, cyber prosecutions. So a lot of those things you may never see in the news because what we're doing is um, never becomes public. So um, especially for national security prosecutions, we may have um, people that we've indicted that the document is under seal until they come into the United States. Um, and a lot of what we do is sort of uh, remains behind closed doors. Of course, some of what we do does become public our office in particular has had a lot in the cyber stalking realm um, that have generated a lot of media attention. I can't comment on specific cases, but there is um, a prosecution of executives um, and individuals at eBay for cyber stalking right now. Um, and you could look up the press release on those cases. And I, I guess I would say generally sort of the goal of what we do in the US Attorney's Office is to A, kind of stop the bad actors from continuing to engage in these types of crimes, but also in federal prosecution generally, we're really focused on deterrence. And what that means is how do we stop other people from deciding to commit these crimes in the future? And so um, there may be some instances where we choose to make an indictment or a charging instrument public, even though we know that that person will never come to the United States. 
and the reason we do things like that is to sort of send a message to um, nefarious actors that might be outside of the United States jurisdiction to say, um, we are aware that you are engaging in this behavior. We have the tools and the resources to come and prosecute you and de to deter other people from kind of making the calculus that it's it's worth it to engage in that kind of behavior. And I should say, well, um, I'm a part of the US Attorney's Office in Massachusetts, we do have a really strong network, both with the Department of Justice and with other um, law enforcement um, globally to kind of track down and, and prosecute these kinds of crimes, especially because um, a lot of the evidence that exists in many of our cases are overseas. And so it's really important for our office to sort of partner with organizations globally to make sure that we're preserving and getting the evidence we need. So um, that's kind of how we differ from the AG's office and um, the, the way we sort of intersect with what Preston does in the private sector is we encourage and want companies to sort of partner with us and share information with us in connection with investigating um, all sorts of crimes. And so we sort of take the position that the company is always in the best position to know their own system, their own data, where things are stored, who would have the relevant information. And so we like to view companies as more of a, a partner in conducting our investigations. And so um, I hope that gives you an overview of, of what the US Attorney's Office does. And I think what we're planning on doing now is having each of us sort of talk through um, sort of trends that we're seeing in our own uh, practice areas. And um, we're also happy to take questions. If you guys have specific questions, feel free to um, shoot them on the chat function and we'll uh, try to address all of them. Yeah, so if we don't have any immediate questions, um, I'm happy to dive in on kind of an interesting thing I saw lately, um, which is essentially the uh, colonial pipeline ransomware attack that recently occurred. I think this raises a lot of sort of interesting issues, particularly in the cybersecurity space that are not only legal, but sort of technical. Um, but that technical background, I think, is interesting and helpful and necessary to understand and respond to. Uh, these sorts of cybersecurity attacks. Um, so for those who are unaware, on May 7th, Colonial Pipeline, the largest pipeline operator in the United States, uh, suffered a ransomware attack. It maintains over 5,550 miles of pipeline carrying about 45% of the East Coast fuel supply. After realizing that they had suffered a ransomware attack on their IT systems, um, Colonial Pipeline then actually shut down their operational systems because they were concerned that the ransomware could potentially move from the IT system to the OT system, which could have serious impacts. So the actual shutdown of the pipeline was Colonial Pipeline's choice, but it was one they made as a defensive measure in response to this ransomware attack. Um, for those who are unaware, Ransomware is essentially just malware that's designed to encrypt files on a device, rendering the files unusable and rendering any systems that rely on those files unusable. The attack that we saw in Colonial Pipeline is a little different though, and it's the type of attack that we're seeing more and more often, which is called a hybrid ransomware attack or a double extortion attack, where the, the hacker will go in, exfiltrate 
data from your system and then encrypt the data that's on your system. So even if you had a backup or something that was unencrypted and you could still access your files, well, they now have your files as well and they're threatening to disclose them if you don't put, pay the ransom. Um, according to one study actually between Q1 and Q4 of 2020, ransomware attacks um, went from involving less than 10% of these double extortion ransomware attacks to 75% of ransomware attacks being at this double extortion type. So this is kind of something that's increasingly being used. Um, if the access that was obtained in the Colonial Pipeline case appears to be due to an outdated legacy VPN system that Colonial Pipeline had in place that did not use multi-factor authentication. So the hackers were apparently fairly easily able to actually access Colonial Pipeline system due to that um, legacy system they were running. So after shutting down their pipeline network, um, Colonial Pipeline reached out to law enforcement, in this case, the FBI, and then eventually the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, and coordinated with them. Um, the next day after the attack, they wound up paying the ransom, which was about 75 Bitcoins, which at the time was worth around $4.4 million. Um, According to one study I've seen, only about 27% of ransomware victims wind up paying the requested ransom. So this would put um, Colonial Pipeline in a somewhat small category, but it's not clear how uh, accurate the data about all of this is. In any event, um, something interesting happened after they paid the ransom, which is the FBI and law enforcement was actually able to track the Bitcoin payments the Bitcoin transfers are reflected on a public Bitcoin ledger, and they were able to find many of the coins went to one Bitcoin wallet eventually, to which they had a private key, which essentially allowed law enforcement to access the wallet. Um, it is not clear, and has not been released publicly, how the FBI and law enforcement obtained that private key, but it is kind of an interesting twist to the story that they were able to recover um, most of the ransom that was paid in this situation. Another interesting factor that came out of Colonial Pipeline is kind of looking at the actors involved. Um, the criminal group involved is called Darkside, which is a Russian-based ransomware as a service organization that was founded, I believe, in 2020. Um, ransomware as a service is an increasingly common form of ransomware where essentially there will be a developer like Darkside who develops ransomware and then sells the ransomware or licenses it to uh, certain affiliates who then deploy it on a target. And then in this case, Darkside actually takes a cut uh, in return for allowing them to use their services, about 10 to 25% of any ultimately paid ransom. Following the um, obtaining of the funds after the fact, Darkside actually announced that it was shutting down its ransomware program altogether and claimed actually that a lot of their public infrastructure on the front end had been seized by law enforcement, although it's not clear which law enforcement has seized that. And there seems to be a trend of criminals now moving away from ransomware, or at least claiming they are going to, given all the public spotlight that's been drawn to it. Um, it's unclear whether they will actually abandon it or just reform as a different organization doing a, a similar sort of criminal activity. But at least on the face of it, they claim to be done performing ransomware in this case. 
Furthermore, is another postscript. It's a kind of interesting. The TSA is now working on a cybersecurity directive for pipeline companies that should hopefully help uh, companies like Colonial Pipeline implement some additional security measures that will help uh, prevent attacks like this from occurring in the future. Um, so that was kind of the overview of Colonial Pipeline. I think it raises a few different in interesting issues being the different types of ransomware used and ransomware as a service and a lot of themes that we're increasingly seeing um, in this space. And I am happy to now pass it over to Jared if he wants to discuss some areas of interest to him. Sure. Um, I have a few things that are kind of like going on right now. I think kind of teeing off of um, what Preston was talking about, and there's a few questions about it too. The <clears throat> what our office has been seeing a lot of recently. Um, well, I'll back up and say we get you know we get roughly three thousand ish notices a year um, for data breaches. So we see a lot of um, different events. And I would say I don't have the specific numbers, but sort of just like a gut. Um, Feeling seems like there's significantly more uh, ransomware and phishing-based attacks. So for those of you who haven't heard the word phishing before, it's basically um, you know, a form of what is also called social engineering, where someone will um, try to send an email or other message to get you to um, enter and log in credentials, for instance, so that they can take over accounts. Um, and then there's something called spear phishing in which it is the messages are very targeted towards specific people because folks have done their background research about them. Um, and in addition, there's been, <clears throat> I think, uh, more attacks during COVID, um, which is a question that um, it looks like uh, Maria had. Um, there, yeah, there have been more during COVID. I think part of it is that, um, you know, more people are on the internet and more people are communicating with their business networks over the internet um, because everybody's working from home. Um, in addition, it's, I think, a little bit more difficult to respond to some of these incidents because people are not seeing each other in person. Um, but I'm, I imagine Preston can probably touch on that a little bit better than I can. Um, the these types of incidents, ransomware and phishing in particular, um, also seem to cause a lot of pain for companies in the reporting um, structure. And um, one of the reasons for that is that it's often difficult to tell um, what has been accessed in those sorts of circumstances, right? You might know that somebody's email account, for instance, has been accessed or um, that a certain set of files could have been accessed. Um, and what most uh, companies choose to do in that circumstance is, um, is they, will, uh, they will decide that it is in their best interest to notify the AG's office, um, even if they can't show that, um, you know, even if they can't necessarily show that uh, the information was actually accessed. Um, Adam asked what, you know, what the office's position on that is. And I think generally we don't, you know, I don't think we're going to take like a full position on, it, it really depends on each individual case. Um, 
but um, I will say that it's fairly common for businesses to um, decide after a phishing attack or a ransomware attack to go through every file, every email that could have been accessed and look for personal information. Um, at least from our perspective, we're getting a lot of notices that say that sort of thing. Um, and that's a really time consuming and expensive process. You need to hire people to look through all these documents. Um, you need to uh, spend a lot of time doing it. Um, and so what we're often seeing is that it may take a little bit of time for people to end up notifying our office or notifying consumers. And that's also a concern to the AG's office because the statute says you're supposed to notify as soon as reasonably practice, practicable. Um, there's also been a new amendment to our data breach notification law in the last two years that says um, basically that it's no excuse that you don't know the number of Massachusetts residents affected yet. You still need to notify the AG's office um, and then you can always update them later. And so um, recently we have started um, telling folks when we think that the notification has been too late. Um, I can't give like a specific timeline for that sort of thing because there's no timeline in the statute, but um, sometimes these reviews take a long time and then the notification takes even longer um, and people are getting notice, seems like a little later than they should. Um, one of the reasons we care so much about consumers getting notice on time is that um, these notification letters give information to consumers that allow them to protect themselves. For instance, um, they inform them of the right to request something called a security freeze, which um, uh, prevents people from pulling your credit so that they won't open a new line of credit in your name. Um, and it also gives them information about credit monitoring if it needs to be supplied. Um, so I think everybody's sort of been thinking about some ways to prevent these sort of attacks. And I think I, another thing we're noticing is that there's some simple measures that people could take that they, they haven't, and that ends up um, making it easier for folks to, to do attacks. So multi-factor authentication is a really large one that um, you know, will often uh, give an attorney a call after an incident and usually will ask if multi-factor authentication was on and usually the answer is no. Um, so that's sort of a simple measure that can be taken that can be very effective. It's not foolproof, but it's a great thing to do. Um, training is great, I think. Um, because phishing and ransomware tend to be um, targeted towards the human element of organizations and not the technical element, um, training is really important to get people to understand what to look for in those sorts of situations. Um, think about, you know, as you, as you all sort of go into your legal practice, just think about where people hold their data um, looking through a bunch of emails for personal information is not fun, um, but it's probably also just not wise to be sending around emails with people's social security numbers in them anyway. Um, so uh, know where your data is. I think that's an important thing to do. Um, often we'll see credentials being like 
administrative credentials or just anybody's credentials being like hard coded into applications or you know somebody writes it in a file and leaves it on their computer desktop um, which isn't particularly effective if somebody gets access to your account um, updating and patching software is really important some organizations have a hard time keeping up with a lot of these different things um, but it's important. Um, legacy systems can be a problem, right? Because they're not always supported as well as um, systems that are modern and up-to-date. And um, auditing your security, bringing somebody else in to take a look can really be helpful too. This is of course coming from the perspective of a regulator having not you know, been in the trenches with the businesses on these things, but these are things that kind of like jump out at us when when we get notices um, as stuff that might have been might have been a good thing to do beforehand and can save a lot of pain um, in the breach notification process um, afterwards. Um, so that's one big thing that's going on. Um, I think the uh, one other thing is that the office, I've touched on this briefly before, but the office is really starting to think about um, data aggregation targeting consumers in unfair ways using it. I mentioned the Copley advertising case before. Um, we're starting to look at sort of hyper-targeted advertising towards uh, consumers. Um, the one example that always jumps out for people is the, um, the target ad to a, uh, um, it was, I, I can't remember if it was specifically a mailer or if it was like an email or something that showed up at a family's house um, and it was advertising like baby supplies. Um, and it was a father uh, at the house, saw the ad and was really upset that um, this particular mailer, which was addressed to his daughter was advertising baby supplies. Um, turns out that Target knew that his daughter was pregnant um, or at least was advertising towards um, uh, his pregnant daughter, um, and he didn't know. Uh, so that is, uh, you know, there's like a creepy factor with some of these things that we're really um, trying to think about and drill down on. Um, <clears throat> so that is sort of one area of focus that we're um, really starting to get into. Uh, and then the one other area that the AG is really trying to push towards now is um, not necessarily a data privacy and security thing, but I think something we'll be looking at is sort of the propagation of hate and disinformation, um, primarily through the internet. Um, and that's, you know, recent sort of current events have, have led the AG to really want to push these um, issues and work with tech companies to kind of figure out how it can be tackled. So you may expect to see more of that. Uh, from us in the future. Um, but those are kind of the three big topics. And if anybody has questions, I'm happy to go for it. Um, but first, we'll send it over to Mackenzie. Hi, everyone. So um, just to address the a couple of the questions from the federal perspective, we have definitely seen an increase in cyber crimes. To a certain extent, there's also in the past couple of weeks been a huge sort of focus since Colonial Pipeline on uh, media attention surrounding ransomware. And I guess with the ransomware, my reaction is this has been around for such a long time. It's just 
only starting to get mainstream attention. But I think the threat has always sort of been there and we've always seen these types of attacks as um, a serious issue. Um, but with respect to the pandemic specifically and kind of the trends we saw during the pandemic, um, one thing that I think is relevant, especially for large organizational clients is that we have seen a ton of CEO impersonations, especially that during COVID. And so the way that works is um, typically a low level employee is being contacted by the CEO, the CFO, someone in executive management saying like, I really need help with a project. Please keep this on the down low. Don't tell anyone. Um, this is a top secret project and I'm choosing you specifically to help me work on it because I think that you have a lot of discretion. Um, you're very discreet and you'll be able to keep this a secret. I really need you to um, go into this file cabinet in my office or this area and get um, help me you know, effectuate this transfer of money, see if you could talk to someone in accounting, you know, very sort of specific instructions, um, even involving like phone calls where the person's voice is doctored to sound similar to the CEO. Um, and employees are unwittingly transferring large sums of money um, at the direction of who they believe to be their CEO. And so that is something we have seen a ton of. I know just from friends uh, at law firms in Boston that people have seen this on sort of a less sophisticated scale with managing partners getting emails, you know, say, or associates getting emails from the managing partner, but it's like super obvious that it's fake. I think this, the scams that we've seen have been more sophisticated um, and companies have suffered serious economic losses as a result of those. Um, so that's sort of what I saw a lot of during COVID. And then another sort of COVID-based trend um, has to do with PPP loans. So the, the pandemic loans for businesses, um, because there was such a large volume of businesses getting those loans, we saw a lot of um, sort of targeted emails saying, uh, your loan has been approved because it's public to sort of look up and see what companies are getting those loans. Um, your loan's been approved, please click here and enter some additional information. Or uh, we need more information on how you used your loan, or we need more information for our files about your PPP loan, you know, click here. And people sort of want to uh, comply with the bank's request. A lot of companies are nervous about PPP loans generally. What if they didn't, you know, use all of it? I know there's tons of sort of um, anxiety in uh, the legal community surrounding like clients using PPP loans. And so these people are sort of capitalizing upon that to request additional information. And then that additional information is going somewhere that it's not intended to. So that's sort of um, what we've been seeing a lot of. I think prior to the pandemic, we were already seeing a ton of um, business email compromises. And I know Jared and Preston talked a little bit about like phishing and ransomware, but essentially business email compromises are, um, for those less familiar with it, um, a form of cybercrime, which uses email fraud to sort of attack an organization. It might be a commercial organization, it could be a government organization or a nonprofit to achieve a specific outcome which negatively affects the business. So um, one sort of prevalent 
area we've been seeing a lot of abuse in is real estate closings. So um, either a title company or an attorney's um, email account getting um, spoofed to look like it's coming from someone, but it's actually coming from the bad actor saying like, the wire instructions have changed for your closing. Here's the new account information. Um, person shows up at the closing and then they say like, oh, I already sent the money. And everyone's like, no, we we never got the money. And then it's a huge disaster for that that individual, for the, the attorney, for the title company, for sort of everyone involved. And so from a law enforcement perspective, a lot of what we're seeing is that um, the individuals involved maybe in, involved in sort of a pyramid structure um, or there, or it could be perpetuated just by an individual, but sort of money is flowing overseas, which of course makes it more difficult for law enforcement to trace. Um, I think that there has been some data published recently about the business email compromises. I think the FBI is saying that it accounts for um, close to 50% of cybercrime losses. I think it's 43%. And sort of the average loss for a business is around $80,000, which is significant, especially for smaller companies um, that might not be able to consistently absorb these kind of losses. Another thing I think that is probably relevant for um, folks listening is if you have clients that have been sort of affected by these compromises, um, I think they once they're affected once, they sort of become a target because the cyber criminals realize these people either don't have their system locked down or aren't able to um, address what they need to quickly. And so they'll try to, to strike again. Um, so I think that is um, sort of what we've been seeing the most of during the pandemic, but it's none of these sort of uh, crimes are, are new. There are things that have been around um, for a while. I'm seeing a, a question here. What if any government enforcement is available on the state or federal level for hate speech or threatening misinformation um, beyond working with tech companies on monitoring or disabling accounts? That's a really good um, question. We, um, our office does prosecute threat cases on the federal level. I think the standard is pretty high and I don't have it offhand, um, but from memory, I think you need to show some sort of imminent fear of bodily harm or something along those lines, which is something that is um, a not, not an easy standard to meet. Um, but we do often hear from folks in private practice about um, sort of their clients receiving threats over various social media platforms. There also could be some sort of intersection at the federal level with the cyber stalking statute. Again, if it sort of meets that high level standard of, of someone being in fear. And typically we look for like a pattern of conduct. So one instance of um, a threat might not be enough to sort of meet the federal standard. That being said, um, when those cases sort of come our way, we do what we can to refer to local law enforcement if it doesn't sort of implicate the, the federal level. I don't know if Jared, if the AG's office um, does anything with respect to uh, those sorts of threats. Um, not, uh, I, I don't think we, we do a whole lot with respect to those sorts of threats. If it's criminal, 
I probably wouldn't know about it <laughs> just because our criminal bureau does stuff a little bit separately from us. Um, we, I mean, we're, we're thinking about ways to do this. Um, it's, and it's not an easy, it's not an easy question to answer. I think um, one of the primary barriers is, you know, the communications decency act, um, which protects companies for things that people post online. And so I think, you know, internally, we've been thinking about what direction, um, <clears throat> where that should go, um, if there's anything we can do in that regard to, you know, encourage folks to, to modify that if necessary, um, or not. Um, and how we also go about, you know, respecting First Amendment freedoms, but also, you know, uh, kind of tamping down behavior that is just, you know, very far over the line. So it is a, it's a difficult question, Mark. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a solid answer for you, but we're thinking, we're, we're trying, if you've got ideas, let me know. <laughs> I think generally to providers know that this is sort of a hot issue, especially I'm thinking like Instagram, Facebook, where a lot of this speech might be happening on. And I, I want to say, I think providers generally would try to do their best to sort of remedy those at their level to address the user, to disable accounts. Um, I think some of what I was seeing is um, individuals sort of getting frustrated that they're not getting traction quickly. And so in some instances, yeah. getting an attorney involved can probably be helpful in, in sort of streamlining that. But I think providers are generally aware that this is an issue. It's something that's been getting a lot of attention. And so hopefully we'll sort of see increased um, attempts to, to help people that are sort of facing those situations. Um, there's another question here uh, that says, there seems to be a lot of doubt that any broad federal data um, privacy or cybersecurity legislation is on the horizon. Do you think that this increased media coverage may have changed this prospect? I think, yes, I think it takes a long time to sort of get to um, the point where the, the government is putting together that legislation. But I definitely think just in terms of general interest in cybercrime and sort of knowledge, knowledge about what is going on, um, especially in the ransomware context has sort of increased, especially um, in recent months. And so, um, I don't think that it would be out of the question that something like that would happen. Of course, I don't really have any inside information on that either, um, but that would certainly make sense to me. Um, sort of what, sometimes people ask at the federal level, um, sort of what keeps us up at night or what we're concerned about moving forward. And I guess my opinion on this isn't based on any inside information, but just sort of trends that, that have, um, either been in the news or um, that we're concerned about is sort of the critical infrastructure and the ability of cyber criminals to sort of attack critical infrastructure. And so this got some attention, I think as recently as yesterday with the president's visit with um, Putin, but basically um, sort of things that we're on the lookout for moving forward are, you know, highways, railways, water supply, energy supply, um, how is the government sort of protecting that infrastructure? Um, I think there was also some attention about um, 
financial services industries um, and sort of what happens if financial services industries and banks aren't able to sort of track payment systems or keep up with um, the flow of money. And so those are all things that um, we think are important to sort of monitor and why the government is so focused on on prosecuting cyber crimes and sort of getting back to that deterrent message, maybe deterring someone at an earlier age from committing a small cyber crime um, sort of sends a message to other people contemplating like the larger cyber attacks that the government does take it seriously and that we do sort of have the tools to um, track people down. And I guess another comment I would make that might be helpful to folks in private practices, I think sometimes um, people think that because we're the government, like we know immediately who has done the cyber attack or how it worked, but these cyber criminals are super sophisticated. So no one, I shouldn't say no one, but it is a rare instance where the person is like logging in from their own computer that connects to their address on Comcast um, and sending uh, sort of the business email compromise from their actual email or using um, actual accounts attributable to them to commit a cyber crime. That's not what we see. People are using um, VPNs, virtual private networks. Um, they're, they're accessing and creating accounts using email providers that are located abroad um, that aren't cooperative with law, law enforcement to sort of transmit information and they are very good at covering their tracks. So a lot of our cyber investigations are more long-term and basically we wait for the person committing the crime to sort of mess up or commit an error that allows us to track them down. And so I think um, that's just important to keep in mind if your company does partner with law enforcement or decide to contact the US Attorney's Office about a, a cyber incident um, that they want help solving or, or want to report to law enforcement, that it's not, um, it's not typically not an overnight solution to sort of solve these sort of issues. And then another point I'd make in that same vein is because um, we are law enforcement, I think it can be sometimes frustrating for victims of these crimes. I think Jared might um, think of them differently and might not call the companies victims. But um, for us, it's sort of, we feel companies' frustration sometimes in um, the fact that information sort of flows one way. Obviously, victims are entitled to certain types of information under the Victim Rights Act. But as we're sort of gathering data and learning things about the crimes being committed, we're not like immediately saying, oh, here's what we got today. Here's the IP address, you know, FYI. Uh, a lot of times victims won't hear from us until there's sort of a meaningful update. And so while that can be frustrating for the victim companies, I think it's important to sort of note that the reason we do that is um, we're conducting secret investigations. There are rules that sort of govern those investigations and the sharing of information. And ultimately, I think it's in the best interest of the company to sort of involve law enforcement because we do have access to tools and legal process that just aren't available to folks um, hiring private cybersecurity consultants. And so I think that's just a point I wanted to make um, in working with federal law enforcement.
if there's any other sort of questions, we're happy to, to hear those as well. Um, Preston had asked me a question in the chat, which might be worth elaborating on. Um, he had asked, and I actually intended to mention this before, but I didn't, if um, the AG's office coordinates with the uh, FTC on unfair and deceptive practices involving data security. And the answer to that is sometimes. Um, <laughs> we, uh, the FTC is kind of right now sort of in a state of transition because of a recent Supreme Court case that um, has affected how it can get penalties um, or if it can get penalties. Um, <clears throat> but um, yes, I mean, sometimes we will work with the FTC on either conducting an investigation or on resolving one. Um, we, I would say we work more often with a lot of states um, and we tend to do a, a, you know, if there's a large incident that affects many states, sometimes we'll do a 50 state uh, resolution. Um, sometimes we'll, you know, do a sort of like a coalition of a few states that investigate one thing so that we can combine our resources and companies often prefer it as well because then they're not answering 50 subpoenas, they're answering one. Um, and uh, everybody, they don't have to go on 50 phone calls, they just do one. Um, and uh, some, a lot of times we'll resolve those cases um, in, you know, with many states at once. So Uber, for instance, did that, Equifax did, uh, except Massachusetts wasn't a part of that. Um, it's very interesting because, you know, each state is different. And so some will be interested in some cases, some will not. Some may, um, you know, have different thoughts about how much money um, is warranted in certain circumstances or what types of legal violations are there. So it is a very, um, interesting process to work with a whole bunch of states and kind of get them together um, to focus on things at once. Um, so there's a few other questions. Uh, maybe, well, the first one here is from Brittany. I don't know, cyber insurance coverage. I don't know if um, that might be a good question for Preston, I don't know. Yeah, I have. I have not dealt a ton with cyber insurance personally, but I, I, my understanding is that it's definitely something that organization organization should consider. Um, but definitely take a close look at your policy in that space. My understanding is that the way that many of them are tailored um, can be unhelpful in the event of an ultimate data breach where you're seeking to uh, recover on your insurance policy. So I think it's definitely something worth considering and looking into but definitely have your eyes open while you're doing that. Um, to the extent the question addresses, how does that affect federal or state reporting stats? From my perspective, I guess, a lot of times victims are motivated to contact law enforcement because they want their money back. And so if the insurer is covering the whole loss, it might mean that the company is not as motivated to involve law enforcement. But I think that's sort of miscalculated because the for, from my perspective, there should also be a focus on ensuring that the attack doesn't happen again and sort of going to what I said previously, once the bad actors realize that the company is a target, it could be targeted again. And so there's still an interest in, from my perspective, in, in catching the individuals responsible. But I certainly think 
if there's no financial loss, sometimes it, it could be a deterrent for companies to involve law enforcement. Um, so there's another question from Adam about what the public status of the litigation is with Facebook. So on background um, for that, we, the Attorney General's Office issued civil investigative demands to Facebook around the Cambridge Analytica incident, and we were curious as to um, other apps that may have done um, similar behavior. Um, we asked for specific information relating to internal um, investigations that Facebook itself did about apps um, and uh, what uh, information they found out. It's called the app developer investigation. So um, they weren't giving us information. And so under the, under the laws, we have the right to go to court and ask a judge to force them to give us information. So we did that last year. Um, Superior Court judge said Facebook was claiming that the information we were requesting was um, attorney work product or attorney client privilege. Um, and so we went to the Judge Davis last year, um, he said it is not. Um, it went to the Supreme Judicial Court um, uh, fall of 2020. Um, and the Supreme Judicial Court ruled, I think it was in February, um, that um, largely in line with the Superior Court, but sending it back for a few factual determinations. So right now um, we are uh, getting ready for a hearing before the Superior Court, whenever that happens, about um, you know more work product questions. So um, it's uh, it's an interesting case because we're really um, you know Facebook has a lot of information about people, and a lot of other folks may have gotten access to that. Um, and then there's another question here about um, talking about individual. Uh, rights of affected people. So I think um, some of the other questions have also focused on this sort of like, what is the potential for um, legislation uh, in the future protecting privacy? And, you know, a lot of states are starting to enact their own. Um, so California, which Preston talked about is a really big one, um, the CPRA. Um, Massachusetts has a bill that's pending. Um, Virginia passed a bill. I think Colorado and Washington passed bills. So states are starting to do it on their own. Prospect of a federal law passing, I don't know, your guess is as good as mine. I think the major sticking points are going to be preemption for um, the federal law. The states don't want to be preempted. We like doing our jobs and we like being able to enforce. Um, but there are some who would prefer that um, states are preempted from working on privacy issues. Um, and then another sticking point is probably going to be the private right of action, whether private consumers can sue on the basis of privacy violations. Um, and then another part of the question is about the Uniform Law Commission Act that's being proposed. I think that's still being developed, so I don't know. Um, I don't know what kind of effect that'll have on various states and whether states will adopt it or not. Um, and then HIPAA and some other, there's plenty of other privacy laws that are out there. HIPAA can be enforced by state AGs, but it's also um, under the purview of HHS and they'll do a lot of enforcement of that. 
um, and FERPA, there's um, child children online privacy protection act so there's a whole bunch of them out there um, and our office will do some enforcement FTC and various federal agencies will also do enforcement on those I don't know if Preston or Mackenzie wanted to add more about that um, I mean just to piggyback off what you said about the possibility of federal legislation I, I agree I think both uh, private right of action and preemption are going to be major sticking points and they have been in the past as to the last few years drafts that have been proposed have varied on those points and it doesn't seem like there's been progress. Um, so it, it is kind of up in the air, uh, but I haven't really seen anything to indicate that that is going to be moving forward more smoothly. Um, perhaps some of this attention on cybersecurity issues will compel uh, legislators to take a more active role in that space, but I almost wonder if it might wind up with a situation where we have a federal cybersecurity law, not a privacy law, or something like that, um, maybe breaking them apart, even though they do work together, they are to connect. Yeah, the federal, I mean, the current federal scheme is very like industry specific, right? There's HIPAA, there's the Graham Leach Bliley Act. The states are really where there's general cybersecurity laws. And yeah, and maybe that, you know, some federal law comes out of that, but it's it's hard to tell right now. So Mark uh, is asking, what what would you most like to do with your office's authority and cases if you had the resources? Um, oh boy, that's a tough question to answer. I, I mean, I think we do want to expand into things like uh, algorithmic discrimination, um, looking at, you know, how data is used to advertise and to target people. Those are the two. That's personally for me, and I should mention, you know, I don't speak on behalf of the office. I'm here as me. Um, which is government employees always have to say that. Um, but that's that's for me. I don't know if, Mackenzie, if you want to answer that or not. I guess I would say for me, it's more of the volume of cases. I would like to do more cases if we had more resources. I think um, that anytime evidence sort of exists abroad, you are working extra hard to sort of get that evidence and filling out paperwork. Um, I think I mentioned we we primarily collect evidence through mutual legal assistance treaty, treaties with other, with other countries. And so um, sort of obtaining and writing up what's required to get that information is a ton of work. And so um, anytime a case sort of takes an international angle, that sort of amp, amps up even more. And so I think for me, it's just there's so much out there that with more resources, I would just do more of what I'm already doing. Great, well, I think we're at one o'clock now. Thank you everyone so much for joining. We really appreciate it. And um, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>